Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. Today I'm speaking with Head of English at the International School of Brussels, Matt Fron. It's always fantastic to speak to a fellow English teacher about the choices, challenges and joys of teaching the subject, so thanks a lot to Matt for offering up his time to chat. We discuss Matt's favourite text he's ever read, studied or taught, his career to date and current position in Brussels, how the IB's expectation for inquiry translates into English teaching at his school, how planning and new materials are organised or developed within the department, how Matt and his team approach the need to balance canonised writers with new or Belgian voices in the curriculum, the part technology plays in delivering the English curriculum at ISB, Matt's work-life balance and how Brussels affects this, and finally, recommendations for resources English teachers who would like to continue improving can use. I hope all my fellow heads of department and English teachers out there find something that resonates with them in the show, as well as new ideas to help them through our international curricula. Please be sure to subscribe to the show via your favourite podcast provider, give a rating, write a review, or simply stay up to date with each new episode. Um, okay, Matt, as an English teacher, English head of department, what's the best text you've ever read, studied or taught and why? Uh, you know, this this is a tough question, Chris. Um, you know, it's really, it, it's hard to pick a single one. Um, and I've actually been reflecting on that a lot with um, the new English A courses and there being so much choice. Uh, and so I can't I can't nail it down to one, um, but I think Beloved by Toni Morrison is mm. is one of those hauntingly beautiful books that um, it's daunting, definitely daunting for students. Um, and most students, when they first pick it up, they think there's no way I can access this, um, not just for the content, but the narrative style. Uh, but after kind of working through it and giving them strategies, there's this major sense of accomplishment for even those weakest students where they go, oh my gosh, I, I, I do understand a lot of what's happening in this, in this incredibly complex text and, and I appreciate it. Um, another one that's kind of similar, also hauntingly beautiful, if you will, is God of Small Things um, by mm. Roy. I think that one's a bit more accessible and I found um, the kind of lyrical quality of that narrative tends to um, engage students more. Um, when I was actually speaking with my students about, about text that they liked, I was surprised um, a number of the boys in particular mentioned Perfume by Patrick Suskin. Uh, well. yeah. um, and, and they said that, yeah, I mean, they, they read it first just because it was a compelling read. Um, and then as we studied it, they really appreciated the, the narrative voice. And, and for them, it was really the first time of realizing how a narrator that's not a character can be such uh, a powerful force in the novel and, and have su such an opinion on it. Um, mm. so for me, th those are really the, those top three uh, uh, novels that, I, that I'd like to go to, depending on, on the ability of the group. Beloved is uh, one which I think I picked it up from my wife's house a couple of years ago and I, I knew who Toni Morrison was but I, didn't, I had no idea what the book was about and haunting is a pretty good word uh, <laughs> to describe some of those so yeah it was it was uh, yeah it, it's one of those rare books that has like a quite a profound impact I think when you when you read it um can you just give us like an introduction to you're obviously um in Brussels at the moment, but can you give us a, an introduction to your career to date and your current position in, in Brussels? Please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started teaching in Los Angeles, uh, in East Los Angeles. I'm American, so that was uh, that was an easy move for me. Uh, <laughs> I was there for three years, um, and then my, my wife and I, we moved to Bangkok, where I taught at uh, Bangkok Patana School for three years. Uh, then five years in Indonesia at Jakarta International School, although now it's called Jakarta Intercultural School. Four years in South Africa uh, at the American International School of Johannesburg. And then um, now five, this is my fifth year in Brussels here at ISB. Um, I'm the HOD here. I've been a head of secondary in the past. I've been an HOD in the past. Um, uh, I've been a professional development coordinator um, and help to kind of organize some international um, professional development weekends, things like that, where we bring in educators from around the globe. 
I see. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here in terms of like the the questions that I sent you previous to the thing. But um, how does the work life balance or the culture differ? I mean, primarily in like what's it like in Brussels? But how does it compare with the likes of Johannesburg and um, Indonesia in your experience? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, particularly during COVID, you know that, that that balance doesn't seem to be there quite as much. Um, mm. You know, places like Indonesia or or Thailand or or Johannesburg, it's very easy to just. It's very attractive to get out of the bubble of the school and go explore the country. Um, I'm not saying Belgium isn't attractive for that as well, but uh, it's, it's it's done so in much shorter stints. Um, you know, you're not uh, island hopping here here in Belgium. For me, that it, it was difficult um, with being plugged in 24 hours a day, um, and the student expectations of teachers here in Europe were are a bit different. Um, you know, places like Southeast Asia, I think there's this. Reverence maybe isn't the right word, but um, this esteem held to teachers, um, mm. and particularly in teachers' time. Um, we're here, certainly teachers are esteemed and all that, but the idea is that, hey, I can send you an email at 8 p.m. You should be able to access that, that email mm. and, and respond to me. Um, but something I, I started doing last year was telling students that I would not respond to an email on uh, any time after 5.30 and not on a Saturday. And in the beginning, that was kind of tough, but I, uh, during open house, I expressed that to my parents. Um, and I explained why that, uh, you know, it's not fair to my own children. It's not fair to the students themselves to be working 24 hours a day and thinking. Yeah. Of and, you know, once I kind of explained that reasoning to the parents, they were incredibly supportive. And within a month, I stopped receiving emails after that time. So I get a lot of emails right in the morning, <laughs> you know, at 8 a.m. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably scheduled there, but it's it's made such a difference. And the few times where I kind of slip and, you know, I, I sit down at the computer, um, usually my kids are pretty good about reminding me like, hey, daddy, that, that looks like you're doing work. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> c- come play uh, Uno with us or, or something. Yeah. I think the boundaries thing's really, yeah, really interesting. I think it helps, obviously, if the school has a... Um, you know, like a centralized expectation in terms of what teachers are and aren't supposed to do. But also when it's a free market economy with regard to education, I can understand why some schools might be hesitant to say, we will not communicate with you after a certain um, time. But yeah, I, I have a similar expectation actually. And it is exactly like you said, like I found it to be, they understand why it is, they understand how it helps them and they're generally on board with it 100% of the time. Um, well, I'm pleased to see our, our head of health and safety was asking questions about that work-life balance a few months ago. Um, and it's it's shifted uh, the school where um, next year that's going to be communicated to all parents that mm. teachers will not respond. Um, it's not just that they're not expected to, but we're, we're telling them not to respond after this time, unless it's an emergency, you know, uh, something mm. like that. Oh, that's great. Um, some I've, this is kind of like a, a question which I've been thinking about a lot myself personally, but with regard to you, you brought up like the English A course before. I'm not sure whether like your previous schools, you did the IB DP or NYP or whatever, but to what extent does your department or the school think about inquiry? What kind of conversations are you having about inquiry? What experiences have you had with it? Yeah, um, I, I think inquiry is um, is central to the ethos uh, of this particular school where I am now. And with um, the IBDP program, uh, at least um, the language A course, there's there's so much flexibility. And there's so much opportunity for choice, uh, particularly when it comes to bodies of work where you're you know you're studying a collection of speeches or or you know a mm. collection of World War One posters. Students can then and, and are encouraged and uh, asked to then go off on their own and find other bodies of works that that speak to them, oh, um, presenting them to the class, um, understanding kind of the uh, historical significance of it, putting it into some sort of context. Um, when it comes to like text choices, for example, in the literature course, with higher level, you have 13 over the two years. And there's no reason not to ask your students. 
of those yeah. 13, they, they should have some ownership of it. Um, and certainly that, that has some interesting conversations of why are you choosing this text or why are you not choosing one of these other texts? Um, mm. As students starting to think about, you know, perspective and the collection of voices that both that they want to hear, but also that they maybe think they should hear that, that they haven't heard before. Yeah, the, uh, the, that, the, yeah, student. Sorry, to, to not to cut you off there. Student autonomy is crucial. I absolutely agree with that. I think it was slightly easier. It was slightly less daunting in the old iteration of the course when it was like, okay, so for paper two, you can either choose poetry, play, prose, whatever. And we used to do a vote every year, and I felt relatively kind of. But it is interesting now with, um, like you say, it's it. The new course is completely free in terms of what what they can study when it's from where it's from etc etc um and it's yeah it's 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 definitely been like an interesting evolution the last the last two years in terms of that inquiry but i do find that i don't know about you the, the kids tend to fall into two camps one are as you say really kind of invested in the holistic experience of literature or language and literature and they're like you know we haven't done an indian voice or we haven't done an australian thing or we have whatever and you've got another group who are like what is going to get me the level seven like what is the text (laughs) which is like it's like no i had this really i think a few years ago they voted for this play which was about a gay couple living in a constant uh, the one of the concentration camps during like world war uh two and it was like i'd never heard of it and obviously but they were super a lot of them were super invested to kind of get into it because it spoke to their kind of interest in lgbt and they knew about world war ii and there's just two guys at the back who are like i've done the search it's not on spark notes it's not on schmoop it's not on this i'm not voting for it sort of thing so yeah i think student autonomy's it's always interesting. It, it makes for interesting conversation, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> when when the new course came in then, like it's quite a good example of, uh, for anyone who doesn't do like IBDP, I know this is, it's quite parochial, but suffice to say when the new course came in, it was an overhaul, wasn't it, of the old approach to, to the new approach. With regard to like planning or materials or, your approach to the curriculum like how typically do you organize that as head of department like how does how does that planning get done amongst you is it like individual or other teams or or what yeah uh, yeah that, that's a great question it's it's not a system where like the head of department writes all the schemes of work and, mm. and other teachers follow it that's that's certainly not the case i know that is at some schools but um that's just not here um we have a really nice setup and the school supports collaboration. So for example, um, all the English teachers have the same um, period off together to plan, um, right. to moderate, things like that. Uh, we don't have our own classrooms, So we have what they call the collaboration room, um, which is really just an office. Um, but then there's also lots of spaces around, um, around the campus for people to meet. It really, really encourages that. So um, when it comes to the, uh, the DP program, individuals are planning their units um, that are, sorry, have the ability to plan their units. Let me say that. The reality is that a lot of people co-plan. Um, and in our meetings, we share interesting works or interesting bodies of work, just sort of short snippets, you know, not like a, an hour long special development, but here's why I teach Sophocles Antigone. Um, here's a really interesting extension activity and here's how it links to, um, to other aspects yeah. of the course, yeah. uh, you know, something really quick like that. And then more often than not, um, one of the other teachers goes, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I'd also like to, uh, do that. Mm. Let's sit down together and, 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 and work through it. So, you know, as far as kind of organizing of materials, we have shared folders. Um, uh, we have actually a spreadsheet which kind of uh, summarizes the, the key aspects of each of the units that, that teachers are doing so that you can go through that spreadsheet and say, I'm looking for um, you know, some sort of a body of work that deals with visuals, you know, some sort of collection of photography. Uh, yeah. I don't want to do war though. I've done so much of that. Oh, here's, here's something interesting. Let me go speak with Mr. Newbill about, about this unit. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, 
do you ever have a situation where like as head of department you you get someone who chooses a text for lit or a body of work for language and you're just like I cannot see that working like do you ever feel the need to step in or do you let it play out or how do you handle that no I mean uh the you know most of the teacher well the teachers then um the you know they share with me their their overall like year plan um, as far as what they're going to study and why. And, and we end up having a conversation about that. And, and often the questions that I ask will get the teachers reflecting and they might then, you know, um, mm. change their choices. Sometimes I do directly say that, look, uh, well, just, just last year, there was one teacher, great teacher. Uh, she was teaching literature for the first time, immediately came up with this great plan. Um, and I just did a quick look and said, look, I, you have America, you have the UK, you have Australia, uh, and you yeah. have this one Nigerian um, novel. And, and that's really it. And it's not that she was focused on the canon. She was just trying to get books down. And then once I was able to point that out to her, she realized, oh my gosh, I need much more diversity. The, you know, the whole point mm. of this course yeah. is to listen to other voices. Um, and very quickly, she was able to adapt it. Usually, it's, it's more of a question of asking, why? Why this one? What are you hoping mm. to accomplish? And with without the text being linked to a specific um, assessment, like with paper two or the higher level essay, mm. with, with that flexibility, that question can't be, oh, it's good to write a comparative essay on. It, it has to be something else that, um, oh, I want to teach realism in drama. And, mm. and this is a great example. Or or as you say, you know, we, we don't have um, uh, any voices from um, Near East Asia. Um, and, and I want to have that voice. And, and I think those answers are, are much more compelling pedagogically than it, you know, it's on schmoop. It fits into uh, this <laughs> assessment level. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I, I feel like sometimes when you are coming up with, and it, it tends to be more of a balance with language and literature. I think literature is more forgiving in the sense that if you really, screw up one or two choices it's not going to have a really detrimental impact but Langley SL particularly for literature choices you've pretty much got a there's no there's no room for dead weight and it's I do feel yeah. like there's like a Venn diagram in my mind sometimes between right what is the text I love what is the text they will actually you would like to think anything you love that they'll 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 buy into but unfortunately it's not always the case and also what's the thing which satisfies you know the ib examination criteria but also is relatively uh, different or kind of representative of something outside of the canon but you also want something inside the canon it's like it's it's it does make for the best conversations actually amongst the department when it's yeah discussing so that's quite nice that there's a lot of um, transparency within your department to discuss. Oh, maybe I'll try that, which is something we've fostered, thankfully, um, the last two years, um, which is which is great. It's always good to borrow from one another and stuff. Mm. Um, when when it comes to um, it's actually kind of this question kind of is a nice seg. The, the previous answer is quite a nice segue into the next question, which is how much consideration do you give for the fact that you're currently in you know brussels i don't know how to is that northern northwestern europe i guess or uh, what kind of conversations are you having about where the text should be coming from it either in you know key stage three i i suppose i if you do igcse then you get told where to take it from but certainly at ibdp level what kind of conversations do you have is there i, I don't think i could name a belgian writer to be honest which is terrible but um, <laughs> what what um, kind of conversations do you have about that? Yeah, no, no, that that's a great question, and you know, and, and and kind of linking with that idea of canon, as you say, when it comes to the literature, that's that's much easier, and not just much easier um, balance, but also I think there's more of an imperative to give that kind of scope of literature. So there, it's important to um, teach some of the canon because if you're going to teach something that's avant-garde, you know, you're going to study uh, Churchill's. Um, Top Girls, for example, a non-sequitur play uh, with few repeating characters. You need to understand how groundbreaking that is. In order to understand how groundbreaking that is, you need to know the Aristotelian principles of tragedy and right. see how that, that just completely throws them out the window. Otherwise, you just go, well, all right, it's backwards. I got it. Um, 
as you say, with, with, with um, language and literature, that's a bit more difficult. Where we've been trying to do, um, the great resource we have is we have a wonderful librarian who is engaged and he's constantly reading and constantly bringing possible texts that we could use. Ah. So, so just recently, he, he handed me a Kindle with three nonfiction texts um, all about Belgium. Um, that, that might mm. be good uh, bodies of work, frankly, for language and literature. One about um, uh, Tour de France uh, winner, I guess, uh, someone who dominated. I'm, I'm not into cycling, so, so I didn't recognize the name, but, you know, students were like, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so. They, they knew him. Um, another about walking tours, um, really kind of like a Bill Bryson-esque uh, uh, yeah. travel writing. Um, and what's the third one about? Um, I, I, I forget. So, so he, he's been an excellent resource because indeed no one in our department is originally Belgium. Um, uh, we have some people from the UK, some people from the States, um, uh, someone from Germany, um, someone from France, but as far as that Belgian culture, we're lacking. Uh, and, and he's been that, that excellent resource for us. Um, another example is I, I know some teachers, um, they're very interested in the world wars. Uh, that's the, the British, uh, uh, uh yeah. teachers. Um, they were looking at the, um, you know, propaganda campaigns, um, or the nationalistic campaigns uh, of Belgium. And so they've been trying to incorporate uh, those. But, but as you say, those materials are less easy to find. Um, yeah. you, know, you type in World War I or World War II posters, and you're going to come up with the UK or the US or, or something like that. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, yeah. Are most of the students in the school Belgian? No, no, it's a it's a pretty good it's a pretty good mix. Um, I mean, we do have a you know a strong uh, francophone population, um, either Belgium or there's a there's a name for French people that move to Belgium that they have some sort of a name. It's not expat because it's so close, uh, yeah. but essentially, yeah, those the French expats. But no, um, um, it's a pretty diverse group um, of students. There isn't you know, a single kind of dominant culture, if you will, within the school. Yeah. Um, you know, like I know when I was in, uh, when I was in Indonesia, for example, we had a significant Indonesian population at the school and there was that kind of lifeblood that, that uh, everyone would then kind of buy into. But, but here there isn't that sort of unifying factor. It's much more an international culture, if you will. Yeah, I think that makes it, I think there's pros and cons to that. So for example, like teaching in Hong Kong, I got really excited. I got really excited or motivated or enthusiastic. I don't know the right word where I was like, right, I'm going to find, I don't know any, I don't know very many Chinese authors, less so Hong Kong authors. And I came across a writer called uh, Aileen, uh, Aileen Chang. And I was like, oh, I'm going to write, I read two of her books during lockdown. I was like, I can't wait to teach this, blah, blah, blah. And I came back to school and I thought, hold on a minute. They're, they're fluent in Chinese. Most of the kids are fluent in Chinese. I wonder if they've heard of her. And I asked them, yeah, we, we study her in Chinese lit. And oh. it was like, okay. <laughs> so I, that, that was quite, a, I, I would imagine that it's quite a nice thing if you are in Brussels or Amsterdam or Munich or wherever. And, and it's, a, it, it's a disparate student population that you can unify them by looking at texts which are from the country that you know you all have in common that you're all from. Um, but like, like I said, I think some countries are obviously easier than others to find, but that's, I've never heard of that before. Like a librarian being so central or so key to, to making suggestions. That's fantastic. That takes a, a lot of the onus off the, off the teachers. That's really great. Um, yeah. with, um, completely sort of like different, um, sort of tra trajectory of question here, but with regard to the students, what do they tend to be? What do, what do they find difficult about English? Do you think is it the typical stuff you would have seen in the states, or is there something quite unique to your student population? Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's anything that's unique. I, I think anywhere you get, you go, you're going to find um, reading to be a struggle for some students. Not 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 all, but there's that segment of the population that um, that just feels reading's not for them. And, and I get that with parents too, right? An open house, maybe you've had the same where you'll have that parent that says, hey, hey this seems like an interesting course, but you know what? I always hated English. Like I hate reading. Um, 
And my experience is that I usually try to challenge people on that. Um, it's, well, well, no, you, you do read, you are literate, you are able to read. It's just, you haven't found something that a teacher is giving you that you love reading. Um, and, and then it becomes, at least for me, what I've done in the past is if a student recommends something for me to read, I'll read it, but then we have to talk about it. And then I get to recommend something for them. Um, and so usually uh, that was pretty miserable in the beginning where, you know, I've read the entire Twilight Saga and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that gets then those students realizing that, oh, yeah, that, that book that I did like in middle school, that, that does count as, as enjoying reading or yeah. the Percy Jackson series. That, that does count. It doesn't have to be something esoteric like, uh, you know, Voltaire or something like that. Yeah. Um, and kind of nudging them along to realize that. A lot of the same things you're seeing in Percy Jackson or whatever it is, you're going to see in these other texts. Um, there's there's just certain patterns that are fulfilled, and kind of learning those patterns will make those other set texts accessible. And if we find the type of content you enjoy, you're going to enjoy reading. Yeah, so I think. Tends to be it. Yeah, I th I think in terms of a conversation, I. You, completely kind of like resonates with me what you just said about like the open house or the parent teacher day thing where I think one word that always comes up in my discussion with them uh, with the students spe specifically is like resistance we talk about like the fact that some writers do want their text to be resistant some of them don't want it to be an easy read it's supposed to challenge you or it's supposed to try and achieve things which okay they're not writing it for you they're probably just trying to impress their friends down at the coffee house like I can write in a lot more sophisticated ways than you can but I think it's it's a dial certainly and it's you know if you start with a diary of a wimpy kid the resistance dial is more or less at zero but it's only a case of kind of ratcheting it up ever so slightly maybe kind of they feel that if they don't read at all like you say going from reading nothing to reading Lord of the Flies, which isn't an incredibly challenging book, but it's relatively quite difficult for someone who doesn't read anything. Like I can understand why they would be put off, but yeah, that's reading is certainly something which, yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's quite a universal, universal difficulty, which that's quite a nice initiative though. It's like, you know, one for you, one for me. Um, I haven't read the Twilight Saga, but is it? I don't know. Yeah, your your appraisal of it seems relatively damning. Well, it actually it inspired me um, for this unit that uh, that we that we introduced, and I, and I just spoke with a teacher um, coming from Jakarta, and the unit's still there, where we looked at just different styles of of writing um, yeah. as far as genre is concerned. So, like, what is what does cheap romance look like, not just in content, uh, but yeah. syntax and the vocabulary they use, as opposed to gothic horror, as opposed to hard-boiled detective or, or, or children's literature, you know, the simple and compound sentences. And <laughs> once we did that unit, the, uh, the final assessment that we did for that semester was to take a piece of text that they hadn't seen before, or, you know, they didn't know what it was going to be. And then they had to explain which genres influenced uh, this text yeah. So we chose Twilight. Yeah. And uh, so many of the students that were passionate about Twilight at the time, you know, this was when the movies were just coming out and uh, there was this fervor. Uh, I remember this one student who walked out and said, Mr. Fron, you've ruined Twilight for me. <laughs> you know, why? She goes, well, looking at it on, with this lens, I can see this is a mixture of gothic horror and cheap romance. And it's, it's just so stereotypical. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well done. I'm glad you know, my, my work is done here. <laughs> yeah that's absolutely right yeah um I, it, it also like kind of from a a more sort of I'm not sure what the right word is here from a more kind of cynical point of view sometimes from reading those those books I mean like I'll pick it up sometimes in an individualization in the classroom and I'll read like the first 30 40 pages or something and it does kind of strike a chord in terms of why they write their coursework in the way that they do or why they express themselves in like why are they writing it you know sometimes they have like a very unique voice like the student but it's not necessarily what I would call uh, ambitious or but it's so different from all the rest and it gives you an idea of oh that's where they've got it from and anyway yeah um 
but that's yeah that's quite uh, i'll have to yeah i think my new school that i'm starting at next year has a look at like different genres and stuff so i'll definitely keep a look at like the cheap romance that sounds really fun <laughs> to, to, to to have a look at um how would you describe the role that technology plays within the school that you work at at the moment broadly and is there a particular kind of approach that your department has I know that in COVID times we've all had to adapt quite quickly but is there any kind of um, novel uses of it that you've that you've come across in the last five years? Yeah you know uh, I mean it's a very well-funded school so they have lots of access to technology of course you know we're one-to-one um, all through the school um, we have multiple green screen rooms. And so, you know, when it comes to, you know, doing short scenes, for example, if you're, if you're studying a play, then rather than, um, the students cutting out like a backdrop or something <laughs> like that, they, they use the green screen rule. Oh, wow. That's really great. Um, we have a, a, a few film courses in the middle school. So, uh, that started a few years ago. So as those students are coming up, uh, we're seeing their their ability to kind of create content and use the use cameras and use the software oh. grow, um, and that's that's really fantastic. You know, stop motion Macbeth um, it is wonderful to watch with Legos. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, we we want to follow the the Samer model, right? The um, try to get towards the redefinition, not just mm. kind of uh, replacing what's already there. Um, and I think there's various levels of that. Uh, in the English department, one of the things that I came in and I, I, I think was able to, to change for the better is the idea of flipped learning um, and the impact that can have on your units and those units becoming much more asynchronous um, or students can kind of navigate their own path. Uh, and so, you know, I, I have loads of videos on a YouTube channel. Um, other teachers here, they're reluctantly adding some videos of their own, but for the most part, they're just using using what I have. Um, for me, the real transformational quality of that is rather than say, okay, folks, today we're all gonna study this poem and we're all gonna learn about tone. Um, mm. It can be, look, here's a list of 15 tasks for the unit. Here are some suggested pathways, but you can take the pathway that you want um, as long as you're moving forward. Um, and that, I mean, Having that already in place when COVID hit last year and we immediately went into lockdown was fantastic, where, uh, you know, students still felt connected, but they had that freedom that they were enjoying being at home and going, you know what, I don't have any other lessons today. I'm going to do eight of these tasks for English. Or, you know what, um, I'm going to focus on the creative aspect now. I don't want to learn about the, the kind of analysis stuff until later. Mm. So that's been really great. We recently got um, enough VR goggles for a full a full set for a class, and so I know teachers use that, um, particularly when it comes to the world literature aspect. It's it's difficult for them to really imagine what it's like in Java, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the way across the world, yeah. and to be able to do you know even just a, a Google Maps tour, but have it on there where they're they feel like they're interacting um, becomes much more visceral of an experience. When, when you do the flipped classroom thing, does that mean, so if you give them sort of 15 options, is there a corresponding video on YouTube for each option or like, how does that, how does that work? Yeah. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll just, I'll take this poetry unit as, as the kind of example of it. So yeah, there are videos that kind of clarify key concepts, you know, oh, I see. And, and it really stemmed from one day in a lesson, someone kept mi- students kept misusing the terms tone and mood. And then they go, you know, what's the difference between this? What's the difference? And I was giving the same short response 10 times. And by the time I got to a student that had a much more complicated question, I was running out of time. Mm. I thought, why don't I create a five minute video that explains that? So when a student asks that question, I can say, watch the video and then I'll answer your questions. Um, And more often than not, they watch the video and it's clear. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of videos that kind of explain those concepts. Um, uh, you know, the use of patterns, of contrast, and repetition. And then there's a number of videos that are uh, activities. So, for example, if they want to practice their understanding of anaphora, so there are there are four or five short activities, very very short. These should just take a few minutes. 
But the idea is that they do activity one and then they watch the video in which myself or another teacher explains what they should have found, uh, the responses uh, that yeah. they should have And we use those for a student to go, if they got what we said, great, that's fantastic. If they didn't get what we said, but they understand why, okay, do the second activity and then watch the second video. If they didn't get it and they have no idea what we're talking about, that's where then you come up to the teacher and say, look, I, I'm really confused with this concept. Um, similarly with student models, it's one thing just to you know, give a model essay and say, look, here's, this is what a great essay. Yeah. Um, it's much better if you're sitting there and explaining like, look, this is why, this is why yeah. this is really strong in organization or look at the way this thesis is constructed. It's really clear and they maintain those organizing principles. And that, that doesn't take a lot of time, but it adds up when you do that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. Creating that short video that lasts three or four minutes, it's only going to take you 10 minutes tops um, doing the editing. And, and then you freed yourself up to have deeper discussions with students that aren't just about kind of answering basic questions, I, I'd say. I, th I think that taps into something um, quite profound for students actually because what do they do when they're on their own what do we do as teachers when we're on our own and we don't know you know if you if you're trying to think of like the three kind of great greek playwrights and you can only remember two of them what are you going to do realistically you're going to look it up online and i think that's yeah that's a real that's something i've been thinking about a lot recently actually in terms of utilizing videos particularly on youtube to do exactly that because you are going to have students who i think it goes beyond even uh you know the ones who ask you the question great but i can think of a handful of students who don't have the um the confidence to ask or they'll pretend that they know and this kind of thing so yeah that's it's something I've, i think i've been planning to kind of do over the summer actually so it's really interesting that you that you talk about that yeah that's um that's certainly something that I think I'll be exploring. I'll 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 link to the YouTube channel in the in the show notes below. I had a look at it kind of yesterday or the day before, and yeah, it's it's um it's amazing that we can do that now. And and it's also I think quite a it's a relatively equitable, if that's the right word, sort of tool because who doesn't have access to to YouTube? Who who doesn't have access to a smartphone in most? Um, developed countries even when I mean I, I went to Cambodia a couple of years ago to do a cast trip and I mean they didn't have great electricity but the, the majority of people who we stayed with out in the villages had smartphones unbelievably and they were watching YouTube so I think it's really nice kind of even beyond the confines of our own school to to boost equity in terms of education that flipped um flips kind of classrooms fantastic um with regard to sort of like this is something which can either be just a complete sort of one one sentence answer where it's like, yeah, completely just as you would expect it to be. But I ask it of most heads of department or English teachers to speak to. With regard to marking in your department, is there any kind of novel or like different approaches that you think that you guys are using in terms of how you approach like the frequency of the, the the things that they're writing or the turnaround time or the nature of feedback? What have you, what have you experienced in the last few years? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think moderation is novel necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but certainly there, there's a lot of that. As far as feedback is concerned, of course, you know, feedback takes many different forms and, and there's daily feedback, um, that verbal mm -hmm. feedback that's given to students. As far as turnaround time, I've been at schools where they said, you know, two weeks turnaround time. And my understanding is that usually that came, that stemmed from concern where teachers were not, mm. doing that. you know, you'd give an essay in September and then hand it back in June. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, mm. That there may be a required turnaround time at this school, but I've, I've never heard it. Um, uh. and, and that's because it's, it's never been an issue. As far as feedback is concerned, um, you know, effective feedback is key. And giving effective feedback can be time consuming for teachers. So something I did for the department a few years ago was went through with uh, the DP standards and the various types of assessments um, that you would give. And I wrote down the discrete skills <clears throat> um, and kind of the standard feedback that you might give, you know, something like you need to use transitions between your ideas to show um, how they link together, or how they build upon one another or 
uh, you know, review how to embed quotations so that they're they're smoothly a part of your sentence. Mm. Uh, and there's a long there's you know maybe thirty of these things though um, when you break it down. And I shared that list with my department, <clears throat> um, and initially I didn't get much I didn't get much response. Then once the first round of assessments came in, <laughs> teachers were coming up saying thank you so much because you have this list of statements, these list of skills, and it's art. What are two or three that this student needs to work on? Not the entire list, yeah. of course. That's just crazy. And then they add a sentence or two that says, this is where you can find the materials that will help model or, or help clarify this yeah. understanding or this skill for you. And it, in my life, I know it saved time. And the teachers that have come up to me have said, like, this especially this time of year when, you know, we have final exams and all of that, it has cut my marking down so much. Yeah. So I think that's crucial because we shouldn't, uh, it's my 20th year teaching. I shouldn't, I've seen most of the writing difficulties that are out there and I shouldn't have to recreate this, you know, flowery statement each time. Instead I can go, ah, I've seen this problem with thesis statements before. Let me go to my, my bank of targets Let's make that a main target for you know for Johnny for the next mm. Yeah, they they um it's it's fascinating to me that we sort of at the beginning of the year a few years ago I think I sort of man uh, mandated is too strong a word I strongly suggested that we don't give written feedback like you know on the script itself I was saying don't bullet point because what you'll obviously what you'll find you're writing you're writing for more or less 80% of the students etc etc if you want to write a comment which so shows your human side if you want to praise them for something I think that's lovely I don't do it but you know I I feel like I can bring enough praise about in in class time so and that was a few years ago and I've there is definitely like an anxiety to not let go of that kind of marking. And I think it's, you are taking a risk. You feel like you're not doing your job sometimes if you just tick a checklist, which I'm, again, I'm a big fan of just saying, these are three things for you to work on. Because realistically, I feel like if someone came and did a lesson observation for me and they did like a director's commentary over the top of the video and they commented on everything, you know, I I don't think I would be able to take that take that in even with the greatest will in the world and the intrinsic motivation to be better and stuff. I think it's much better just to go one, two, three, work on that for the next couple of weeks or something. So, well, yeah, I, it's I think you, know. you, you you've actually just mentioned a, another powerful aspect of it that when it's taken off of the piece of paper, it, it it's not particular to that work, mm. and if it's digital, then you can consolidate all that feedback. And yeah. so my, you know, before learning conferences, for example, we pull out their list of targets that they've had over the year and say, where are you seeing growth? You know, so I can point to you know, how have you improved? And they can look and go, oh, my gosh, I'm not getting that target anymore. Or it also puts up a red flag where I can say, this is the third time I, I, I've spoken to you about this particular skill. Let's have a meeting to work on the skill. Whatever you're doing isn't working. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have some sort of an intervention uh, and, you know, having it all on that single document just makes it so much easier as opposed to let's pull out this paper, let's pull out this paper, let's pull out this one. How how do you tabulate those um, kind of that, that data? What are you using in order to track that? Um, you know, so, I mean, numerically, I'm, I'm just using like a standard spreadsheet where uh, you know, out of uh, out of five points, for example, with with the DP for each of the four categories, so you can see that. Oh, look, your your organization overall is improved. I as, see. Yeah. As far as the discrete skills, each student has their target document, um, and when they do a piece of writing, whether it's a full essay or you know or something really short, but that's still targeting these similar skills, and they and they get a target from me or feedback from me, they then copy and paste it to that document. I see. Um, and so, so then I can go into their, their folder that they've shared with me, make sure that they've had that, um, see which ones they've highlighted as far as I'm literally working on that one at this moment. Um, yeah. And I think it just, it helps the conversations as far as students reflecting a lot more. Um, those weaker students that feel I'm just not, I, I never get anything. I, I, I'm not improving at all. You can point to something concrete and say, look, look at mm. your document. You're, you're improving loads. Um, or that student who says, 
I'm working so hard. How come I'm not getting better grades? And you can say, well, look, I've been giving you the target to spell the author's name correctly now for over a year and, and you're still not doing mm. it. So, um, yeah, I think it just makes much more fruitful conversations around, around the work and, and what they can do. Yeah, some of them are more abstract than others. Like some of them are definitely more forgivable than others. Like I feel sorry for the students when they ask me, you know, how how can I be showing more appreciation for the, you know, the tone or the something which which you do have to rely on modeling for. You do need to rely on uh, exemplars and not just exemplars, but like you said before, a walkthrough of said exemplar and the thought process behind it. When it's the author's name and the spelling of it, I'm a little less kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I, uh, <laughs> I don't really give that as a target. I was just, uh, that was the first one <laughs> yeah. on the top. Yeah. No, but it does happen. Like, we kind of, we try to bring in something uh, either this year or last year with regard to, like, uh, uh, sensitivity to context lower down in the school in, like, year seven, eight, and nine in Key Stage mm-hmm. 3. And the, the minimum expectation was that you just use the name of the author or the playwright or whatever and the text's name at least once in in the thing you know like it's it, and and that is aimed at five percent of the students and still whether it's because of cognitive load whether it's because of you know the, there's a number of different reasons it could be but some students do still find it very few still find it like a challenge to remember to those two key things anyway um in terms of uh, my last question with regard to like materials or things that you've come across that have helped um your practice or your teacher's practice in the last few years? Is there like a key thing or a key couple of things that you've come across that you've uh, like read or watched, which you think would be useful to, to all the English teachers out there? Who? I mean, there, there's certainly a long list, but if I, if I'm going to distill it down to three things, um, the advice that I, that I would give a, a teacher to improve their professional development. One is becoming an examiner. And, and whether whether you're teaching uh, GCSE, A-levels, <clears throat> DP, whatever it is, um, go through the process of the training to become an examiner. And even if you don't end up then doing the marking, that's still very informative. But also, you know, marking 85 um, individual orals, it's not fun, but the... As a teacher, you grow so much and realize, oh, these are the common mistakes or, oh, gosh, that's a way that I can push my students further or, yeah. or something like that. So, so that's that's number one. Um, number two is um, recently, recently, in the past 10 years, I've, uh, I completed a course with a group called Coetail, C-O-E-T-A-I-L. Um, and that's really about um, technological integration and personalized learning. Uh-huh. Um you get court, you get university credit for it. Um, so if you're someone interested in moving up the band, that's that. But what that did, besides just the the skills and the approaches that I learned from that, it helped grow my professional learning community and then people that that I'm still in contact with. Um, um, yeah, some really novel approaches. And kind of the the third thing with that is, I'd say get on Twitter. Um, yeah. Get on Edu Twitter. The the amount of times where I sent a question to teachers or I'm looking for this and, you know, I'm not getting loads of responses, but I'm getting enough. Um, and yeah. I'm getting a different perspective of something that, that I wouldn't have thought of before. It's, it's really supportive. And even from an emotional standpoint, to be honest, you know, teaching can be a heavy profession and there are days that are yeah. harder than others. Um, and going on there and seeing, you know, another teacher that I've never met, but we've been in contact for years speaking about a similar problem, it, it makes you feel less isolated and, and alone. Yeah, particularly for a head of department as well. I feel like you've kind of got to keep up a, a certain image of yourself in front of other people and stuff. And yeah, edgy Twitter is certainly something which I think I only discovered two or three years ago. I am every now and again tempted to kind of follow people related to like, you know, soccer and this kind of thing. And that kind of leads you into this whole sort of like dark hole of, you know, trolling and stuff like that. But I've recently kind of culled all my non sort of like edgy Twitter people, but it is fantastic. It's such a good resource with, with regard to the examination thing. Sometimes I find it quite difficult with moderation. Moderation is something we do a lot of here as well. Um, And I think it's really invaluable for like English or language teachers in general, I suppose. Sometimes I get like relatively, um, 
not not necessarily younger teachers, but teachers who aren't as experienced with a particular curriculum. So like our GCSE, GCSE, A-level, IB, whatever. And sometimes I, f- I find myself ex- saying to them, they say, I don't understand why it's not a level seven. I don't understand why it's not a level six. And you can't point to the mark scheme because, you know, it's just a difference in adjectives or it's just a, a difference yeah. in adverb or something like that. And it's a really woolly, fluffy, call it what you will answer. But I just say, listen, it, in my experience, or if you've seen 500 essays compared with five essays or 50 essays, you just know what this looks like compared with, with this. And it's such a rubbish answer. And I'd hate to be given that answer as a younger teacher. But I definitely agree that a fast track way to get to that um, mindset is to mark you know all those and at least you get paid for it it's not kind of (laughs) i hate i i I must admit i i did the io the lit ios this year and it was it was all right actually i quite liked it because it gives you new ideas for what to teach next year and stuff like that but when 50 percent of them are persepolis you're kind of like oh Oh, and i love persepolis (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, half of it's Ibsen or like it. Yeah, it's and I love those texts. Don't get me wrong; it, there wasn't a single text where, yeah. But when something did come along, like like you said before, Aaron Dutty Roy, and you know, like uh, some kind of Russian text that I've never heard of before, that's lovely. But then actually, it's to say, kind of to to counter that. A part of me is like, oh, for God's sake, why can't you just do Persepolis? Because now I've got to read this in more <laughs> detail. Um, but that, yeah, actually, that's, you would have heard some yeah. of my students. Um, we submitted our orals really early, um, mm. and I guess that that made them appropriate for the uh, the qualification uh, paper, uh, the qualification orals. I, I did the lit orals as well, and when I got to the fourth one, the students speaking about uh, I think the birth of mankind and God of small things. I was like, I recognize yeah. that voice. Um, ah, yeah, maybe, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You just, yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, fantastic suggestions. Thank you. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, all, all that remains to say really is, I, I know I mentioned this before we started recording, but it is always lovely to kind of get to sit down with like a fellow head of department. And um, I mean, the first word that came to my mind then was vent, but I don't think that's the right word to, to share ideas and things like that. It's yeah, it's, it's great. And you've given us some, some lovely insights there. So thank you very much. Anything that you've mentioned, which are, yeah, I'll, I'll try and link to as much as, uh, as you mentioned uh, in there, in the, in the show notes below, but thank you very much for, yeah, your, your time and your um, ideas today. Uh, thanks, Chris. It's always great to to speak with another head of English. Okay. Cheers. Best of luck with the uh, the rest of the year. You too.